Money Spot, the show where I answer your money questions. I'm your host, Heather Katonga Woodward, and in this week's episode, Alex asks a question about pensions. Hi, Heather. I'm 22 years old, and I've been trying to get a good control of my finances. I'm still a student, so I don't have a regular income. I've set up a lifetime ISA account to save for a house, but I'd also like to begin saving for retirement. I've looked everywhere online, but nothing seems to explain what different kinds of pensions there are, how to open them, and how they work. Please help. Thanks from Alex. Alex, this is an amazing question to be coming from a 22-year-old. Well done for setting up a lifetime ISA. That's a good move, especially as... They're considering phasing that scheme out. It didn't work out as well as the government had predicted. I've been meaning to write a post on personal pensions uh, like this since Christmas because another person asked a few specific questions. So I'll tick their questions off in this post too, as they could apply to you as well at some point in the future. So pensions. Pensions are one of my favorite topics. If you were in a job you would have access to either a defined benefit pension plan or a defined contribution plan. But I won't cover either of these two here as you're not currently working. I will cover DB and DC plans, which they're called for short, in a future post. And in this one, I'll focus on your specific situation. What you need to open is a self-invested pension plan or SIP. When you do have a workplace pension, whether it's a DB or DC scheme, defined benefit or defined contribution, you can also have a SIP in addition to it. There are no penalties for doing so unless you've reached the annual limit for investing in a pension, but this isn't something most people need to be worrying about. Once you open a pension account and a SIP account to be specific, you need to decide how you want your money to be invested. This is your decision unless you hire a financial advisor. However, even if you do get financial advice, I always strongly advise getting some financial knowledge so that you can judge whether you agree with the advice you're getting or not. Every financial advisor has her own beliefs and biases, as we all do, about investing, and that's just human. The question is whether your values are aligned with her values. Most people don't know a lot about investing, including me when I started working. So some investment sites might ask you to answer a few questions on how you feel about risk taking. And then once you've told them, they suggest ready-made portfolios to you to invest in, which would be aligned with what you say your risk tolerance is, your stated tolerance for risk. On some other websites, investing websites, you might have access to what they call target retirement funds. This means you state when you want to retire and they adjust the risk of your investments based on that. So for example, if you want to retire at the age of 62, which is 40 years from now in your case, Alex, you would select a 2060 target retirement portfolio. The fund manager would then manage the risk by investing in more risky stuff now when you're far away from retirement And as you approach retirement, the balance of investments would be adjusted away from the higher risk, higher return investments towards the lower risk, lower return investments. 
The risk-return relationship is very important here. If you say you have a lower tolerance for risk, then the options you will be given will have a lower associated risk, but also a lower return on your money. So you don't want to be too conservative because you're probably getting a lower return than you need to be getting. If you have a long time until retirement, and being 22, Alex, you have a very long time until you need to retire, then you can afford to take more risk. Personally, 100% of my stock investments are in equities. That is, they're invested in companies' shares because I get a fixed bond-like return from property investing. So that kind of balances things out for me. By comparison, the average investor will usually have a portion invested in bonds and a portion in equities. By buying bonds, you're essentially lending money to companies or the government, and they pay you a fixed amount for that loan. As a lender, you're not a part owner of the company, and as such, you don't get a share of the company's profits as you would if you invested in the shares. By the way, uh, shares, stocks, equities are usually used interchangeably. They mean the same thing in most cases. I'll give you a quick tutorial on the difference between equities and bonds. I won't go into too much detail on equities versus bonds, but these are the important differences. So with equities, you become an owner in the company. With bonds, you're not an owner of the company. With equities, your return depends on profits made. With bonds, you get a fixed return regardless of profits. With equities, if the business fails, you could lose all the capital that you invested. With bonds, if the business fails, you are a higher priority than the equity investor for getting money back. So you might get some or all your money back. With equities, you pay dividends if the company does make a profit. So dividends is what you get. With bonds, you're paid interest whether or not the company makes a profit. With equities, the value is much more volatile. It goes up in boom years and down in recessions. And sometimes within booms and within recessions, it can be very sensitive to news. Bond values tend to be less volatile, but they do also go up and down. As interest rates rise, bond values fall. As interest rates fall, bond values rise. Why am I telling you all this? Because you need the sort of high-level knowledge to decide how your money will be invested. What portion of your investments will you put into equities and what portion into bonds? If you're investing in ready-made portfolios and they give you an indication of risk, the higher-risk portfolios have more equities and the lower-risk portfolios have fewer equity investments. The first decision you'll need to make is whether you want to invest in single stocks or index funds. You can manage your risk by only investing in funds or portfolios that invest in a wide variety of companies. These are the so-called indexes. Some people find it more exciting to buy a single company's shares, single stocks, but that is much more risky than investing in funds because a fund is a diverse portfolio of lots of companies. So you're naturally diversified. Because index funds include a large number of companies, the complete failure of any one of those companies would have a much more limited impact on your return. 
I have dabbled in buying single stocks myself, and I can tell you that it's very difficult to choose winning stocks to maximize your chance of winning just by the whole stock market, either by buying index funds that track a whole country or by buying index funds that track a whole industry. If you do want to dabble in single stock investing, don't put any more than 10% of your portfolio into them. And as your portfolio gets larger, I would reduce that to 5%. So for every 1,000 invested, don't put more than £100 into single companies as a guideline. And as you move towards a portfolio worth £100,000, I would personally reduce single stocks to no more than 5% of my investments. These are arbitrary percentages. And as you gain experience, you will decide what feels more appropriate to you. But these are just basic guidelines that I think you can use to start off with while you figure out the stock market. Your next decision needs to be over whether you want actively managed funds or passively managed funds. Passively managed funds track a whole market, such as the S&P 500, which tracks the 500 largest listed companies in the US, or the FTSE 100, which tracks the 100 largest listed companies in the UK. I emphasize listed because there may be companies that are just as large as those listed on the stock market, but because they're privately owned, you wouldn't have access to buying their shares. Alternatively, instead of tracking the whole market in a given country, you can choose to invest in a specific sector such as utilities or technology or consumer goods. Actively managed funds have an actual person choosing which shares are likely to outperform the market and investing in any such undervalued shares or choosing companies that are likely to grow rapidly and enjoy a rapid increase in value as a result of that rapid growth. The objective of an active fund manager is to beat the market index, while the objective of a passive fund is to match the return on an index. Now, you'd think that active funds, because they're managed by clever fund managers, are likely to beat the average market return compared to passive funds, right? Unfortunately, history has taught us that this is very simply not the case. Well over 95% of the time, fund managers do not beat index trackers. Not only that, the fees on actively managed funds are higher. So even if you observe that an actively managed fund has achieved the same gross return as a market tracker, an index tracker, you would be earning less than with the active fund after the fees have been deducted. Where to start? Where to start? I realize that this is all very technical stuff, especially if you are a beginner. So in the resources, I give you links to a few indices to get you researching and investing. These are all funds I'm invested in, but I'm not recommending you invest in them, only that you look at them to see what is included in each fund, what countries are represented, which companies are in that fund or index, what the fees are, and by the way, I'm using the word fund and index inter interchangeably as well here, and what returns have looked like over the last six months, one year, five years. I have put the fees for each fund within the resource, as the fees charged is one of the primary reasons I choose whether or not to invest in a fund. 
fees can dramatically erode your return. So you should always consider what the fees are before you invest in anything. Just so you know what I've got on the list, I've got Legal and General's Global Technology Index, which has an annual cost of 0.32%. This is a passive fund. Another passive fund I invest in is Vanguard US Equity Index, which only costs 0.1%. Another passive fund I'm invested in is Legal and General's US Index, which is very much like the Vanguard one. But sometimes I diversify by choosing another fund manager that invests in the same thing. The annual cost of the LNG US Index, which just tracks the S&P 500, is also 0.1%, just like the Vanguard one. Then I use Fidelity as well. The Fidelity Index for the US costs 0.06%, also passively managed. And my favorite actively managed fund, which costs 0.95%, so basically like nine times more than the average other fund, is Fundsmith Equity I. Fundsmith are one of the reasons that during the 2020 coronavirus pandemic, I've seen a complete recovery in my portfolio to where it was before. Most portfolios have only dis- uh, recovered by a third, but mine has seen a full recovery. And this is the point where, you know, I have more Fundsmith in my portfolio than just the 5% I've told you you should have. But anyway, do as I say, not as I do. I'm joking. I am actually not investing in Fundsmith anymore as I'm trying to dial them down to 5 to 10%. But when I first started investing, I did have a very Fundsmith heavy basket. Even from what I've just told you, you can see the large difference in fees. 0.06% at Fidelity and Fundsmith at 0.95%. That's huge. And that is usually the case with actively managed funds versus passively managed funds. Always check. You need to know your fees before you invest in something. However, I am personally convinced by the management of Fundsmith. Their investment philosophies are aligned with mine. And I think they have the potential to beat the market over time. But I don't put all my eggs into the Fundsmith basket anymore, despite my confidence in them. In summary... If you invest in a self-invested pension plan or SIP, there is no commitment to a fixed pension income at the point of retirement. You are taking on some risk. You therefore need to be careful in deciding how the money is invested. In doing this, you need to consider, one, how much of your portfolio do you want allocated to equities versus bonds? Two, will you dabble in single stock investing? Or will you stick to diversified funds that track a whole market or whole industry? Three, what markets and industries do you want to invest in? For example, I don't have any UK-focused index funds because I started investing heavily in equities and more intentionally after Brexit. And I don't think the UK's prospects are certain enough for me to put any of my hard-earned pension investments into the UK stock market. Four, will you invest in actively managed funds given their atrocious historical performance or will you stick to passively managed index funds? Those are your four main decisions. Now, where can you open a SIP? The biggest difference between the various platforms where you can open a SIP is the user interface, customer service, and the fees as usual. In a nutshell, 
you might be charged any and all of the following fees. An account opening fee to open the SIP account, an annual management charge to the platform. Some will call it something different, but it's basically the fee you pay every single year for using that particular manager. A dealing charge for buying index funds, and sometimes you'll usually have a different dealing charge for buying single shares. If you buy index funds, each fund has a different annual ongoing charge. So you need to be careful. In addition to the annual management charge on the platform, any index you buy also has an annual management charge. And these were the fees I was telling you about with, you know, the 0.95% at Fundsmith and the 0.06% of Fidelity. Those fees are in addition to the platform fee. There are other fees, but I'll give you the first four that I've given you here when I tell you the various places you can open a SIP. In the resources, there is a link to Money to the Masses website. They have a table showing what the fees look like depending on the amount invested. And I recommend you have a look at that table because it'll be a little bit more detailed and some of that detail might be more useful than I want to list here. Otherwise, this would be a very boring podcast. So I'm going to tell you about four places you can open a SIP. Firstly, Halifax Share Dealing. They don't have an account opening charge. They do have SIP administration charges though, and these are £22.50 per quarter if you have less than 50000 invested or £45 per quarter if you have more than 50 k invested. Other charges might apply. Their dealing charges are £12.50 per trade, which is, I think, quite a heavy fee. However, you can reduce this to £2 per trade if you automate your investment. So if you're going to want to invest exactly the same amounts into the same funds every single month, it's just £2. So that sounds quite reasonable. The second place you might want to open an account is Hargreaves Lansdowne. And this is all in the resources link, so you don't need me to spell it out. They don't have an account opening fee. They charge you 0.45% as an annual management charge. Dealing charges for shares start from about £12, but they fall as you buy more shares. But you only get that benefit if you're trading a lot. If you're just investing consistently month from month into two or three funds or into two or three shares, you're not going to get the reduced cost of investing. However, they have no dealing charges at all for buying or selling funds. So if you're going to be primarily focused on index funds, they are a good place because there's no fees for that. The third place you might want to use is iWeb. And by the way, I use Hargreaves Lansdowne for my kids, um, pension investing, and I use iWeb for myself. iWeb have no account opening charge, but they have very similar charges to Halifax because they are owned by Halifax. So £22.50 per quarter. If you have 50K or less invested, £45 per quarter if you have more than 50K invested. And there might be some other fees I don't know about, but I don't think so right now. Their dealing charge is £5 per trade, whether it's an index or a share. Big note, you can't automate investing if you use iWeb. You have to basically manually log in and make your trades every time. That's not a drag to me. I don't mind because I invest different amounts every month. Finally, Vanguard. Vanguard have no account opening fee and the annual fee for having an account at Vanguard is 0.15% capped at £375, which is great that they have a cap. 
The big difference between the Vanguard platform and the others that I've just mentioned, which are Halifax, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and iWeb, is that you can only invest in Vanguard's own funds. They don't offer products from other fund managers. However, all the other platforms I have told you about will give you access to Vanguard funds and a plethora of other fund managers. Having only Vanguard's funds is not necessarily a bad thing because too much choice may lead to paralysis of analysis. They are cost-effective at Vanguard, and if you have an ISA elsewhere, in addition to the SIP at Vanguard, you can use the ISA to invest in funds run by other institutions such as Legal and General or Fidelity, just to name a few. Vanguard are very well rated in terms of performance and customer service, in addition to having their good fees. That said, you could save money on the account fee by investing in Vanguard funds via Halifax Share Dealing or iWeb, and those two platforms would give you access to the wider variety of funds as well. But that's your decision. And also Vanguard's minimum investment is £100 a month, or a £500 lump sum. If you want to start out with like £25 per month investments, which at your age, Alex, of 22 is absolutely fine, then you need a platform that will allow lower monthly contributions. Where do I invest? As I've just said, I have a SIP for my son at Hargreaves Lansdowne and I have a SIP for myself at iWeb. The fees at iWeb were the cheapest for my ISA when I was opening an ISA and I decided to have my SIP there too because the fees were reasonable, although they weren't the cheapest at the time I opened it. It didn't make sense to have a SIP elsewhere just to save on not very much money. iWeb don't have junior ISAs and I wanted to keep my son's SIP and his ISA together as well. So I just added it to his Hargreaves Lansdowne account where I had already opened a junior ISA. Based on the small amounts being added to my son's SIP, which is about 100 quid a month right now, which I recognize is not necessarily tiny, but you know, it's small relative to the fees that they charge at Hargreaves. The SIP fees were actually cheaper at Hargreaves Lansdowne than they were at iWeb. But they would have been more expensive for me because my SIP account has more invested than my son's. So the maths just work out well, even though it's across two places and I have to log into two different places. To cut a very long story short, where you choose to open a SIP can also be influenced by where you have an ISA and whether you want these to be kept together. It's not necessary to have your investments all in one place. I certainly have several investment accounts for various reasons in quite a few different places. But before you decide, speak to a few people, including family members, so you have a flavor for where your social circle seem to be investing, if at all, and why, and that might help you make a better decision. How much can you put into the SIP each year? You can have a SIP if you're resident in the UK, whether or not you pay tax, but your earnings impact the maximum amount you can put in each year. If you're not employed, i.e. you're not working and paying tax via the pay-as-you-earn system, the maximum is 2,880, and it becomes 3,600, including a government top-up that you get. And this government top-up is equal to 100 divided by 80. So whatever you put in, multiply it by 100 divided by 80, and that's what you'll ultimately have with the government match. When you are employed, 
you can put the equivalent of your full salary into your pension up to a maximum of 40,000 per year, including the government match. I won't go into lifetime limits for you as you're so young. I will discuss these in my general post on pensions. Can you have a sip if you're a British citizen living abroad? This was the question I received around Christmas. You can't make contributions to a SIP if you're not a UK resident, even if you have a British passport. So even if you're British, you have to be a UK resident. If you have spent some of the year abroad and some of the year working in the UK, HMRC counts the number of days spent in the UK to confirm if you are UK resident. I won't go into detail here because the actual number you need to qualify as UK resident depends on whether you are a UK resident in the previous few years and how many days you stayed here, blah, blah, blah. So speak to a tax advisor. You can, however, set up a SIP if you're resident overseas and want to transfer UK pension from a previous job to the SIP, but you can't make additional further contributions to it. So for example, if you have a pension with a UK employer and you're leaving that job and hence have the power to transfer that to a SIP while you're abroad, you can do that. If you're resident abroad, but you're paid in the UK and hence pay tax here, you can also have a SIP. So for example, some British expats work abroad, but are paid in the UK and pay a portion of their tax in the UK and they're likely to qualify. But this is a very nuanced, fine point of law and tax law, especially here. So speaking to an accountant or financial planner is essential to make sure you don't fall foul of any of the rules if you're ever in one of these complex domicile situations. What happens if the company you have your SIP with goes bust? Another question I got at Christmas. If your SIP provider becomes bankrupt, your money should remain unaffected. Your money is not invested in the SIP provider themselves. They either simply manage your investment or act as a platform for you to manage your own investments. I hope this helps, Alex. I really enjoyed answering this question. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. If you want to ask me a question, read my blogs, or support this show in any way, please type themoneyspot.co.uk into your address bar and you'll be redirected to my website. I also now have a few products for you on there. My property course is currently the best rated UK property course on Udemy for people who are starting out and you'll love my notes to debt freedom as well as the pamphlet on avoiding the motherhood poverty trap. Last but certainly not least, if you're enjoying listening to my podcast, I'd be very grateful for your five star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. If I don't yet deserve your five star, please let me know how I can earn it. Enjoy.